This passage continues with the ethical instruction that we find in 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 4 began a brand new section where he begins to give moral, ethical instruction. He's going to give doctrinal instruction in a little bit. And today it's focusing especially on brotherly love and what you might call simple living. And I'm very excited to study this passage because this gives us a positive picture of what it means to live the Christian life in contrast to a negative picture, which is saying this is what we don't do. This is our way of giving a positive picture of saying this is what it is supposed to be like. Not just correction, not just sound doctrine. It's of course important to know sound doctrine. We spent a lot of time talking about that. It's of course important to know God's morality, right and wrong. It's also good to engage in Christian service and do all those things. But all of those things are there to serve as a foundation for the life that God has promised for us. If you don't have those things in place, you cannot live what Jesus called in John 10.10, the abundant life. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus did not come to give us less of a life. Isn't that great? He came to give us a life of abundance. And as important as all those things I just mentioned are, and without minimizing them in the slightest, if we limit what it means to live as a Christian just to the rituals and the rules, then we've become Pharisees, not Christians. We might be right in all the things we're saying, but we're missing out on what God intended our lives to be, the fullness of life. And there's a phrase I've made up, but we're going to use it, that I've been liking lately, that to be a Christian means to be life positive and I, I would use the word pro-life, but it's not just pro-life in terms of abortion and for children to be born, but the whole life, the Christian life, the Bible is all about life is a good thing, and life in Christ is the best thing. And it's not about trying to avoid as much of it as possible and restrict it as much as you can to this narrow band of what's permitted. It's about living the fullness of life that God created for us. Making the most out of every day and every moment. Not only following Christ because it's right, right? It's the right thing to follow Jesus. It's the truth. He's the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. But we also follow Jesus because the life that he gives us is so much better than anything else. Amen? It's not just because it's right, although it is. It's not just because we need to, because we do, but because what he gives us is better. I think that this could be one of the most liberating messages that we could hear as Christians. What is the purpose and the character of the Christian life supposed to be? And going into Thanksgiving week and beginning the Christmas season, I think this is the perfect time to discuss all this. So I hope this message puts a smile on your face. I know it did mine and I was getting ready for it. I hope it helps us reevaluate our priorities a little bit to broaden our minds about what it means to follow Jesus. Let's look first at verses 9 and 10. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. So before we get to that topic I was just talking about, we want to hone in on, on these two verses here. He moves on to the, the subject of love. And if you know Paul's letters, he uses a very familiar phrase where he says, now concerning, 1 Corinthians, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning the Lord's Supper. And this is one of the ways we know that it was, in fact, Paul who wrote it, because the language is so similar. And he's talking about love. But before we get to love, I want to look at 
this idea of being taught by God. Because that's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? We're going to look at two, two Greek words here before we, we move on to the verse 11. But he says they have no need to be reminded about love. I hope that can be said of us someday, right? Because they are, the Greek word is theodidaktos, which means taught by God, or it's one word, God taught. Now you can see those words in there. Theos is the Greek word for God, like theology, okay? And didaktos is like the word didactic, means to instruct or to teach something. So you put them together, theodidaktos means God taught. I like that word. And you know what's cool about this word? We don't find this word anywhere else in Greek literature except for the epistle of Barnabas, which was uh, a writing of the church fathers a century or so later. So Paul made this word up. Isn't that cool? Theodidaktos, God taught. You maybe have heard of somebody who is an autodidact. It's somebody who teaches themselves. Well, as a Christian, you are a theodidact. It means God teaches you. In Isaiah 54, 13, talking about the new covenant, God promised that when that came, he said, all your children shall be taught by the Lord. And in John 6, 45, Jesus quoted that verse and saying, these days have now come that you get to be taught by God himself. 1 John 2, 27 says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. He says, you have no need that anyone should teach you for God himself teaches you. If I can tell a really quick story. When I went to a Christian high school, I had never heard of the idea of a life verse before. And they would ask me what that was. I had no idea what that meant. And I was a rather sarcastic young man. And there were several life verses that I used to love to put in when the teachers asked. And one of them was that one. You have no need that anyone should teach you. (laughs) The other one was from Psalm 119 where it says, I have more understanding than all my teachers. No one ever really thought it was as funny as I did, but... Anyway, (laughs) if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, he has sent his Holy Spirit to you, who not only empowers you for holiness, which we've talked about lately, right? But he instructs you on how to live and how to understand God's word. John 16, 13, Jesus said the spirit will come and he will guide you in all truth. He gives us, you could say, new instincts when you become a Christian, that you begin to be drawn towards certain things. Your mind begins to understand things biblically and godly. That's a pretty fantastic thing. Have you not found that when you're in the Bible regularly and when you're praying diligently, when you're attending church a lot, you you are constantly being confronted with these errors in your own behavior and your own thinking. That's the Lord teaching you. The more time you spend in his presence, the more he's shaping you and instructing you, even if you don't have anybody there to say it verbally. That's the spirit at work. This is the part of the sanctification process that we've talked about a lot. The Lord teaches us. He's like an ever-present coach who knows you intimately and knows what you need to work on. So when it's just you, he begins to work on those things with you. there's There's a whole other realm of doctrine I could get into about this. This is because we have the spirit within us, we're guarded against false teachers. That's what John was getting at in 1 John. Because God speaks to his people. This is the idea called the priesthood of all believers. That there is authority in the church, yes, and it's important. But because the spirit is in each individual person, the Lord can speak to each one. And the church itself is internally guarded against false doctrine and false teachers. 
which is a pretty spectacular thing that God did. So if you know the Lord, you probably know what this is like. And if not, maybe you need to come and find Jesus and be filled with the Spirit for the first time. Or maybe you've drowned out the voice of God so much, you can't even hear what he's saying to you. I advise you to get quiet and listen to the Lord. Because we believe that when you open your Bible or when you seek God in prayer, he himself will speak to you and teach you exactly what you need. Which is why we say, go home and read your Bible for yourself. You say, I can't understand it. You have the author with you whispering in your ear. Theodidactos. Isn't that cool? So that's the first thing, that they were God taught. But the specific lesson they were being taught was to love one another. Brotherly love, as the authors put it. And you know this Greek word. This is the word Philadelphia which means brotherly love. The word philos means to love. Adelphia means brother. And of course, that's where the city that we have in our nation, where Rocky comes from, that's what it was named for, the city of brotherly love. And what's cool about the New Testament use of this word, in Greek and Roman culture, that word exclusively applied to the family unit. Like you have a special kind of Philadelphia that even your best friends are not privy to. It's a family thing. You know, I have a loyalty to my brother before I have a loyalty to my friend or my commander or anything like that. But the Bible takes that and expands that not just to your physical family, but to your spiritual family, which is why we call each other brothers and sisters. That you ought to have that same love for that. Galatians 6.10 calls us the household of faith. I like that. And he looks at their love for all the brothers, he says, throughout Macedonia. You remember in chapter 1, he was talking about how their testimony has gone out throughout Macedonia and throughout Achaia? Well, apparently it wasn't just their testimony, but they were extending tangible brotherly love to the other Macedonian churches, which would be Philippi and Berea. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 if you like. For time's sake, we, we can't get there. But this is a verse where Paul is taking up that collection that he would take to Jerusalem, and he uses the... Macedonian churches as an example of people who were poor but were giving above and beyond. He says, I didn't even want to include them in this because I knew they didn't have anything, but they insisted on being a part of it. So this is the character of the Thessalonian church. They had a reputation. So Paul says, I don't really have anything else to say to you. Keep doing what you're doing. Christians everywhere are your brothers and sisters, especially here. And you ought to have the same kind of love and loyalty for them that you have for your own family. He uses that word in verse 9, agapao, which is from the Greek word agape. There's no gradation of love between brothers and sisters. We have the same Father, God in heaven. And His Son, Jesus Christ, is the firstborn, and we are all His adopted family. And that ought to knit us together more than our own blood, right? Haven't you found in some cases that somebody you are related to, you are less close and less tied to than somebody who's your brother in the Lord? I found that to be true sometimes. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Now, you may be doing very well with loving your brothers and sisters, like the Thessalonians were, but as he says, we need to always be doing so more and more. You can always do better. There was a commentator named Michael Martin that I was reading for this passage, and he said, Learning to love is a never-ending discipline. The nature of Christian love is such that it is always practiced, never mastered. Love is choosing the highest good for somebody else. And some people are easier to love than others. But you know what? That's family.
and we are family, and we ought to love each other that way. If we've truly been taught by God, we're truly going to love one another. And if we claim to be godly and spiritual, yet we're harsh and we're selfish, what have we learned, really? You didn't learn it from the Lord because God is love. Amen? Amen. Let's get into verses 11 and 12 now. He had said at the end of verse 10, we urge you, in verse 11 he says, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Aside from the teachings on the rapture, which we're going to begin next week, this verse, verse 11, is the one that I was the most excited to teach when I considered going through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. I think these are not only some widely neglected verses, but I think they're incredibly liberating to those of us who have been overwhelmed by life. Trying to figure out how to live a good life can be a very anxious thing, can't it? Because you're looking at all the possibilities and all the options, and especially with the internet, you can find all the options if you want to. And you can shut down, float through life. Now, we all know that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. We all know about right and wrong. We love the church, and we love the Bible. But what I want to talk about now is the everyday. We know what's right and wrong, but what about when I'm not facing a moral choice? Okay, I know I'm supposed to go to church and I'm supposed to evangelize and all the rest. I know I'm supposed to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Trinity, and I know I'm going to heaven someday, but I've got a whole life here. Does the Bible have anything to say about that? The everyday? Well, of course it does. And we need to be reminded, the Bible, as I said, is life positive. To find Jesus is to find real life, not to find your life suddenly shrunken down to just two or three things, which is how we put it out there sometimes. It's what the Pharisees had done. They had missed out on all the best parts of life, became a competition to see who could fast and tithe the most. And Jesus said, you can't even read the scriptures right because you're just reading them for your own self. Let me give you an example of this. When I went to Nepal for the first time, we went out to this village where we had built a school, the church that I was at formerly. And we were walking through this village, and it was, it was sad. It was this most beautiful country you've ever seen. The, the trees were different than our trees because, of course, it's a different climate, so it was very amazing to look at, and there were animals everywhere, and the sun was shining, and the riverbed was over there, but the people were just living in squalor, absolute squalor, and we're walking around, and I'm talking to Nanda, the pastor, and we're discussing this, and he said, look over there, though, and there was a woman in, in her house, and she's waving at us, and she said, that's a Christian woman. Can you tell a difference? Her lawn was cut. Her stoop was swept. Her house was clean. Things were put in the right place. She had a smile on her face. And he said, you can always tell who a Christian is because they're happier and their houses are clean. And I said, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, Nanda. Why is that? He says, because everybody else is bound under this, this theory of karma, that the way your life is is the way you deserve it because of something you did in a former life. And you must suffer in your life in order to be able to move on to the next one. So if you try to make your life too good, then you're not getting the full suffering that you ought to suffer, therefore you're going to have to do it again. So they have no incentive, in fact, they have a reason not to improve their own lives. And he showed me the, the different houses, they're falling apart, they won't do a repair because, well, the, the roof caved in, that must be the way the gods want it. If I fix it, I'm defying the gods. 
oh, the kid is sick. I can't take the kid to the doctor because if I do, then, you know, the gods might say that, that I helped her when she was supposed to be suffering, and then I'm going to suffer for that too. But when you come and you tell them that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and he sets you free from all that, and he has come to give you an abundant life, everything changes. Now, there's a reason to get up in the morning. There's a reason to take care of yourself. There's a reason to take a shower. There's a reason to sweep the floor. And these seem like such small things, but they're huge in that place. And the same is true for us. When you find Jesus, it doesn't ruin your life. You now have found that abundant life that Jesus talked about. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So if you feel like your life has been stolen and your dreams have been killed and everything you've ever wanted has been destroyed, that's not Jesus. He says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gives us abundant life. And with all the appropriate caution, I say to you, being a Christian is so much more than just coming to church, reading your Bible, and obeying the rules. That's pharisaical religion. Jesus came to give us real, true abundance. As I said at the beginning, all those things are the most important foundational things, and if you don't have them, you can't have the rest. But the Lord has more. He tells the Thessalonians to aspire here, is how the ESV translates it. That word is philatimeomai. We've already looked at a philo word today. Philos means to love. Timeomai means to honor. So to aspire or to make it your ambition was the word to love honor. Now you've got to picture this being said to soldiers going into the battlefield. Make it your ambition to gain honor for yourself in your life. Or in the athletic field. Go out there and win honor for yourself. That's what it meant to be ambitious or to aspire for something. So when Paul uses this word, he's saying God is giving you permission to step out and make something wonderful out of your life. This is not a surprise to us. In Genesis chapter 1, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. We've been going through Genesis. Do you remember how we put it when we started this book? The Lord said, I've made an incredible world. I've given it to you. Go make something out of it. And that is still what God says today. And in fact, if you're a Christian, it is more true for you because you've already had sin dealt with in your life. And the Lord opens up a whole world of life to you. And Paul gives us three instructions here to show us what kind of life that we ought to pursue as Christians. And I hope it's as relieving for you as it was for me. And I realize this is the kind of thing we're not used to hearing, but it's in the Word. It's in the text of Scripture. I want to saturate everything I say today with cross-references and Bible verses, because if we can believe that this is true, I think it'll set some people free. So the first thing he says, we must aspire. So make it your priority. Make it your ambition to live quietly. It's in the word hesukadzo. It means to rest. It means to be quiet. It means to be still. That might seem strange when he says, make it your ambition to be quiet. (laughs) That doesn't really sound like an ambitious thing, is it? It's almost an oxymoron to do that. This, This is how we can dispense with the idea of aspire, and some of you were getting worried. To aspire is not the same thing as what the Bible will call selfish ambition. It's not the same thing as what the Bible will call vainglory. That's an old word. I like it, though where it's all about me and promoting me. He says, make it your ambition to live quietly. And the first lesson we're going to learn here is as Christians, to live your own life. Not seeking to look at someone else's life and chase that in order to promote yourself and become something pompous. 
There's a great example of this in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 45, verse 5. Jeremiah is speaking this to his scribe. His scribe's name was Baruch. Baruch was the one that wrote the book of Jeremiah down. And in chapter 45, Jeremiah says, Hey, Baruch, I have a word from the Lord for you. In verse 5, he said, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. Baruch thought his spiritual position with Jeremiah was a way to advance himself. I'm right-hand man to the prophet. And God's speaking to him, and I'm writing down the Bible, and the kings are going to listen, and we're going to be remembered forever and ever. And, you know, maybe when he's gone, I'll kind of be like Elisha, like I'll step up and take his spot. And Jeremiah says, hey, you seeking great things for yourself? Stop that. Because I'm going to deliver your life, but this world is going down in flames. Now, there was a very specific situation he's talking about there, but it applies to us, too. You are going to be delivered, but this world is going to burn with a fervent heat, as Peter says. Following Jesus is not about self-promotion or vainglorious ambition. I've met folks that became preachers because they thought it was a way to lift themselves up. I got some things to say. Well, this is the wrong job for you. Get a blog, pal. And you know what's interesting about this passage, live quietly, many, in fact, I'd say almost most of the commentators that I read on this believe that Paul is specifically referring to those who are wrapped up in the political ventures of their city because the words he used are very similar to certain phrases that were used. Paul is calling them down. He's saying, live the life that's right in front of you. It is almost universal today that we are obsessed with lives that are not our own. And we get embittered because we see the way he lives or she lives, even if it's just a neighbor, and we get bitter because our life is not that. And our life is small and quiet, and we get frustrated and we get angry. Some people see the, the glitz and the glamour of politics. We'll use that example. Or athletics, or business, or art. And they grind their teeth because they feel like they're on the outside looking in, and that's what I want, not this. Other people just are always looking to the person next to them, their next-door neighbor, their friend from work, and we'll get to that a little more in a minute. But they neglect the life they've been given out of envy. They don't want to live quietly. They want to live big and loud and shiny, and everybody knows my name, and everybody recognizes me, and everybody thinks I'm something. That's what I want. But as a Christian, the Lord liberates you from that. He liberates you from obsessing over other people. And the way they're living their lives. Have you ever known somebody, I, I'm thinking of a, of a friend of mine that I have, who they thought their life was going to be something. Maybe they thought they were going to be a football star or something growing up. And then something happened and it didn't work out. And now they're 25, 26, 35, 45, and they've never moved on from that. And they don't know how to come down from that. The Bible calls it sitting under your own vine and your own fig tree. Living quietly. Living your own life. This is what Paul told us to pray for in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. A peaceful and quiet life. It's not really what at least the advertisements on TV seem to value, is it? <laughs> but I have found... When I stop worrying about Washington, when I stop worrying about Hollywood, 
when I stop worrying about other people, my friends on Facebook or whatever. I take a fresh delight in my own family and my own house and my own church. When I'm not worried about what's going on over there, I sit down and I look what's going on right in front of me. And now there's all kinds of advantages to being able to know what's going on all around the world, right? But there are so many things that if, if we didn't have the internet, we wouldn't even know about them because they don't ever affect us. But we spend days and hours and weeks stressing about it instead of living the life that's right in front of you. And we spend more time looking what's going on with that guy who's famous or that girl who's famous than with our friends and our neighbors and our kids. That's not living quietly. Isn't that sad? We're, 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 we're obsessed with being loud and adventurous and big and instead of looking at the quietness of our own lives. You know what's interesting? The stories used to be that the, the hero would leave their small town and they'd go to the big city or they'd go on the adventure. And the story always ended with them coming back and realizing, yep, I learned something, but this is where I belong. You don't see that anymore. The story ends with, yay, I finally got out of there. It's interesting how that's changed. Maybe you can find some examples of the opposite of that, but I think you get the point. Christian, aspire to live quietly. Live your own life, not someone else's. God gave you this place and these people and this church and this town. So love those things well and don't worry about other people. This is so key. We have to do this because I've seen it, y'all, in, you know, this year has been crazy with all, all the political obsession going on. It's like trying to break yourself out of a drug habit. You've got to stop checking that so much. Well, if I don't check, I won't know what's going on. It's like, exactly. <laughs> and I had to tell myself at one point, listen, if we go to war, I'm sure I'll hear about it. <laughs> well, I want to be a good citizen. Well, are you a good citizen by focusing what's going on 3,000 miles away? You have no idea what's going on in your own spot. You have no idea what's going on in your own family. Live that life. Stop stressing about that. Determine in your heart right now, I'm not going to be upset anymore about not being a celebrity or not being top dog or not being in some sort of position of influence. Live your own life. Come down out of there. Quiet down. Maybe turn a few things off and just look around. That's the life you've been given. Live that one. That's the first thing. Second, he says, we must aspire to mind our own affairs. So, step one is stop worrying about everything else, your own life. So now that you've done that, you can focus up. And this is, of course, related to what we saw in the last point. He's saying not to be a busybody, right? Not to be obsessed with other people. There's a lot of passages in Scripture, believe it or not, that say to mind your own business. <laughs> but let's put this positively. Not just to mind your own affairs and not someone else's. Literally translated, that's attend to your own things. So we're going to expand this out a little bit to mean enjoy the fullness of life. Now that you're living your own life, attend to it. Enjoy the fullness of what is right in front of you. Don't just focus on it. Delight in it. This is the relieving part. Because now that we're not bitter, <laughs> now that we're not lusting after fame and false glitter, and we say, okay, I'm down in this life. Now, if you only do that, you might just get grouchy. But you've got to not just live in this life. You've got to delight in it. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. If you've read that book, you know a lot of it is this is vanity, this is vanity, this is vanity. But there are several times in there where he says what we read in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat 
and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What's his point? Life is hard. Life's not fair. Life is short. And it's very frustrating. So you know what he says? So don't worry about it. Enjoy what you've been given. He says, if you've got a hard life that's full of toil and struggle, enjoy that to the most you can. And if you've been given wealth and power and prestige, enjoy that too. Make the most out of what you have in humility and in simple joy. Now this might seem odd to your ears. Because whenever we talk about happiness as Christians, a lot of times, we immediately want to jump in and, and warn against sinful indulgence. Okay, can we just assume that we all get that? <laughs> that we're not talking about sin here? It's really unfortunate. You know, there, there are some teachers that go really too far when it talks about what, what God will give you and that sort of thing. But sometimes in our reaction to that, we, we feel like we can't even just talk about the joy of the Lord anymore. And some preacher who talks a lot about being joyful and happy and enjoying life, we somehow look down on them because they're not miserable like we are. Isn't that what the Pharisees did to Jesus? We've got to watch ourselves. So I'm going to preach that for a little bit. Don't let the danger of sin keep you from happiness. Well, God's given us a mission. Yeah, he has. Well, the world's corrupted by sin. Yeah, like Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But that ought not to ruin your life, especially since you as a believer have been liberated from all that stuff. You were on the, the railroad tracks going this way, the Lord pulled the lever, and now you're going the right way. That ought to bring a little more joy and happiness into your life. Consider Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2. Do you remember this one? His mom was a wedding coordinator. She was. They're at this wedding, and they run out of wine. Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he goes, and? <laughs> what he really said was, woman, what does this have to do with me? Don't call your mom woman. She won't like it. But, but his point was, my hour's not yet come. He's saying, I haven't even started my ministry yet. He hasn't done any miracles, but she knows who her baby is, right? And she says, okay, look, I'll see what I can do. And what did he do? He turned the water into wine. And not only that, but the guy tasted it. He goes, Oh, you saved the good stuff for last. What were you holding out on us for? Let's get this out here. And there was no sermon that came after that. Jesus didn't even tell anybody what happened. He did that because he wanted that family, that couple, to have a happy wedding day. That's it. That's important. Jesus was not just concerned with the big issues of the day. He wanted this couple to have a happy day on their wedding. That's important. You've got to remember that. And go home and think about that if you're so concerned with God's justice and wrath. Because the Lord is like, look, yeah, life's hard, but why do we got to make it harder? Have a happy wedding day. Psalm 104, verses 14 through 15. I love this psalm. I can only read two verses because it's long, but it's all about the good things that God provides. But he says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. He's saying, you've given us all these things so that we can enjoy the life you've given us. Psalm 84:11 says that God is the giver of every good thing. If it's good, God gave it to you. 
Psalm 1611 says, At the right hand of God there are pleasures forevermore. I thought we weren't supposed to like pleasure as Christians. Not sinful pleasure. There's all kinds of things that are pleasurable but are not sinful, and those all come from the Lord. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. So if you're not enjoying all things richly, you're missing out on what God has intended for you. You ought to enjoy the life you've been given without allowing the big messes of life to get in the way of that. Do you remember? Here's another thing that will make you uncomfortable. Do you remember that Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of being a glutton and a wine-bibber? You know what that is? You eat too much and you drink too much. Jesus enjoyed his life. He was always being invited to these houses, and it made the Pharisees feel like it was a little unseemly how much that rabbi eats. <laughs> Not only that, they're saying, how can you call yourself a rabbi and drink that much? They called him a drunkard. See how quiet it got all of a sudden? That's Jesus Christ. Now, did Jesus get drunk? No, because Jesus never sinned. But Jesus enjoyed himself to the point where the religious people thought it was unseemly. Jesus lived life to the fullest. The things that God has given to you are meant to be enjoyed richly. Things like family and friends are to be enjoyed. We're so quick with life. We're always buzzing from one thing to the next. We never take the time to stop and just enjoy being with your kids. I had a dollar for every time somebody told me when they see my little kids, spend as much time with them as you can. It goes so fast. Well, I'm trying my best. And it does go fast. Especially when they sleep and you see them like sprawled out on the floor and you're like, how did they get so big so quick, you know? That's life. But it's not just your kids. It's everybody. You don't know how long you've got with people. It's fun to hang out with your friends. So do it. <laughs> go do that. The love between a man and a woman is a good thing. It ought to be celebrated. You know, we, we get so weird about that in the church for some reason. You know, I'll oh, be careful now. And listen, we don't want them to sin, but shouldn't we, rather than saying, watch out all the time to keep them from sin by giving them a positive picture of what it looks like and affirming as much as we can? Yes, we should. Good food and good drink is to be enjoyed. We had a men's barbecue yesterday. We had a great time. Holidays and vacations, those are fun things. Sometimes you, know, you go on a vacation, somebody wants to post something like, you know, there are starving people in Pakistan. <laughs> well, I'm not in Pakistan. And God gave me all things richly to enjoy. Do those things. Enjoy them. Another piece of advice I'm always getting is, hey, don't wait until you're, you're older to start taking vacations and holidays with your family because you're going to miss it when they get older. We all know these things. Even the simple little pleasures. I love to read books. That's a good thing. Going to the movies is a fun thing to do. Playing video games is a fun thing to do. Some of y'all generationally don't get that. But it's fun, and it's a good thing. Music is a wonderful thing. Just sitting and listening to it and playing it and singing it and just hanging out with friends, and none of y'all sound that good, but you're enjoying yourselves together. <laughs> Football is a wonderful thing to enjoy. Oh, see, we get so worried. Well, I enjoy this too much, and I'm afraid I'm... Paul is always talking about boxing and racing and wrestling. We can talk about football, can't we? Going home on a Sunday afternoon, and you're full of Chipotle, and you fall asleep. That is a good thing in Christ Jesus. 
Now, are there excessive and sinful pleasures? Yes, there are. So give those a pass. But don't be so obsessed with the potential corruption in everything that you've got no room for joy left in your life. There is always going to be a crazy person on Facebook to tell you that what you did was wrong. Don't worry about those people. And if you have certain convictions about things, even maybe some of the things I've discussed today, okay, you obey your convictions. God bless you. But Paul also tells us, you know, there's those, those passages where he talked about the weaker brother and the stronger brother. The stronger brother is not to stumble the weaker brother. We get on that a lot. What we need to remember is the weaker brother is not to be a killjoy for the stronger brother either. And it's unfortunate that we use our convictions as our attempts to manipulate and get things just the way we want in other people's lives. Paul says, who are you to judge another man's servant? You ever go to, you know, go to the store or something and somebody starts getting on your kids? Well, I'm talking like your kids were doing something bad and somebody like stepped in, but they're just like harassing your kids. It's happened to me. I have a very sweet and tender wife, but you watch what happens when that happens to her. <laughs> so when you come to some other brother or sister in Christ, they're doing something that is a, is a pure and simple joy in the Lord, but it's something you maybe wouldn't feel comfortable doing. Just, just back off. Let us fill our hearts with joy at all times. Not just living this life, but living it up. Enjoying every nook and cranny of the life God's given to you. That's biblical. That's not just fun and happy. That's biblical. I'm going to read another passage from Ecclesiastes here, verses 7 through 10. He says, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life, and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going." That's in the Bible. He says, let your garments always be white. Let oil always be on your head. What does that mean? You, you would wear your, your brightest and your most colorful and your whitest garment when you were going to a party. You would put oil on your head when there was a special occasion. He says, do that all the time. Enjoy the life God's given to you. He says, because one day you're going to die and there's not going to be a chance to do that anymore. But you know what else? God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And if you think you're just going to be sitting on a cloud strumming a harp for billions of years, you don't know your Lord very well, do you? The Lord's going to create another new earth with no sin in it, and he's going to say, just like he said to Adam and Eve, get out there and make something of that world. Which is why I am firmly convinced that many of the things we enjoy in this life will continue into the next life. But there's going to be none of the sinful excess attached to it, which means you're going to enjoy it even more. It's important to know that, because that changes the way you're living. We read that verse in Ecclesiastes where he talks at the end about doing whatever you can with all your might, and that pulls us into this third aspiration that Paul gives us, which is to work with your own hands. Let's put that in our own language. Do all things well. Primarily, this is a lesson to avoid idleness, right? Don't, don't just sit around doing nothing. Get to work. And we're going to talk about that later in chapter 5. There was a system that was at work in the Thessalonian city and all these other city-states where a, a way a person could make a living was they would find a rich person and they would essentially say, you tell me what to do and you give me money. So if there was a rich person that wanted votes, basically, or if they wanted somebody to support them or promote them around town, and it was called being a, a patron, 
And so there's probably some of that. There were, we know from Acts, some of the leading women. So there were wealthy people in the church here. We know that Paul and Silas worked with their hands to avoid being dependent on the churches, right? But this is, of course, not teaching that we all must be manual laborers. That if you work in front of a computer instead of on a railroad, you're somehow violating scripture. That's obviously not what he's saying here, okay? But he's saying that we all must work hard, that we must work diligently, and we shouldn't be indolent or lazy, whatever your pursuits are. I mean, first of all, that applies to your job, doesn't it? You need to work when you are at work. And I have been guilty of not working when I am at work before. I remember being told my first job, I was 15 years old, washing dishes in a fine dining restaurant run by a large, loud Austrian man named Reinhard. <laughs> and it was everything you just ran through your head, yes, he, that was that guy. And the guys told me they were training me, they said this, you got to make sure you always look busy or Reinhard will give you something to do. Not be busy, look busy, because then you might have to work at your job. And I always thought that was strange because it's like, well, I mean, I'm, I did come here to work. So he's like, yeah, but you know, if you're just over here messing around, he won't notice that you're not doing anything. And those were the guys that got fired because Reinhardt always found out. But I think you see the point, right? You should be doing well at your job. You should be trying to do well. You should be imaginative and diligent at your job. And if you just can't, like if, if you're like, I have no joy and no love for this job, then maybe it's time for you to look for something that you can do that at. We don't all have that option, though, which means you should determine that you're going to work hard first and then maybe try to find something that you'd be happy to work hard at. This applies to our relationships. You've got to do all things well. Work hard. A lot of times we work really, really hard when we're dating. Then we get married and like, oh, good. Now, now I don't have to pretend anymore. <laughs> That's not right. Don't do that. Oh, did, did I step on somebody's foot just now? Sorry about that. It applies to your worship when you come to the Lord. We, we can sometimes be the most diligent and hardworking people, and we're very assiduous in everything we do. Then we come to church, and we're just lazy, lazy, lazy. Not, that's not good. It applies to the way you take care of your money. It all should be done well. And if your goal in life is to do nothing, I'm going to work really hard today so I can go home and just sit down and do nothing. What's that all about? I'm going to work really, really hard so I can retire and do nothing. Well, what's that all about? Even the Proverbs 31 woman, you know, we talk about being a Proverbs 31 woman, and we attach all kinds of attributes to that, which is fine. But most of that was about how hard she worked. That she went out and she was making investments and doing real estate deals and making candles and organizing the employees and sewing clothes. And that's, that's the example for all of us, regardless of whether or not you're a woman, obviously. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, whatever you do, anything, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. That's important too. I'm not going to work hard for that man. Well, you're not working for him. You're working for Jesus. This is when all this gets exciting for us, you guys. Because first of all, we're living quietly. We've learned to live our own life. We're liberated from needing to be known and needing to be loud. And number two, we're delighting in all the joys right in front of us. We're minding our own affairs. So now we're encouraged to work hard at all we do and make the most out of the life that we have. Is this the same thing as vainglory? No, it's not. You know, a vainglorious person is somebody who only works if they think it will advance them forward. Have you ever worked with somebody like that? If they, if they see the boss rolling around, all of a sudden they're, they're right on top of things and they're telling people what to do and 
Then as soon as he leaves, they, they're on their phone until he comes back. That's vainglory. That's I'm only working in order to promote myself. Or if you don't feel like this job is really going to feed my, my career ambitions, you just don't do a good job at it. That's vainglory. In Christ Jesus, we do all things well. He says, whatever you put in your hand, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. That's a pretty cool thing for me. Because I'm living my own life, I'm enjoying my life, and now I'm making the most of my own life. It means I can go home and I can practice my guitar and work really, really hard at it and have my fingers bleed, have the string snap up and hit me in the eye, and then finally nail that one tune, and that can be glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord sees that. It means that when you go home and you're improving your house, you're not just doing that because you want people to look at you and think how great you are. You're doing it because you're working for the Lord. When you're engaging in some sort of artistic thing, when you're writing, when you're painting, when you're exercising, we're not just doing that for applause. You're doing it for the Lord. And that's, this, that's a subtle, not so subtle danger of, of social media, isn't it? Is that we do everything in order to be seen by people. I'm going to fix up my house so that people can see it. I'm going to make dinner so that I can post a picture and people will see it. I'm going to work hard so that people will see it. The Lord says, don't worry about that. Just do it for its own sake. You can enjoy playing guitar for its own sake because God has approved that. You can enjoy going out and working on your car for its own sake. This is not some weird lesson against recognition or promotion. It's not even a lesson against applause. Sometimes that's part of it. When you're working in order to present something to somebody. But it moves the focus away from the prestige that comes from these things to the process of doing these things. A lot of times we hate getting ready for something, but we love the big event. Hate football practice, love the football game. You know, I, I hate practicing the violin, but the recitals are lots and lots of fun. What the Lord allows us to do is to center our joy and our attention in all of that because we're working for Him. In all things, whatever you do, those hands that God gave you, get out and do them well. Not mediocre, not mediocrity, not, not just doing kind of what everybody else can do, not lazy, not hoping you can stop working on things so you can finally sit down and, and catch up on those four shows you're supposed to be binge watching. When God sent Adam out, what did he say? Go out and work the garden, Adam. There was work before the fall, there's work after the fall, and there's going to be work after redemption in the new kingdom too. Go out and work with those hands. You were made by God to produce and to craft and to create. So go do that with freedom. Now, can our hobbies and pursuits become distractions? Yes. But there's also something very spiritual about perfecting your skill at something. Even in the Psalms, it says, play skillfully to the Lord. Life is full of so many wonderful things. Maybe you've never even stopped to think about this as a spiritual thing, but it is. What are you going to pursue and work at? What, is, what excites you? What lights your fire? What puts that twinkle in your eye? Maybe you don't have any of that. Well, find something. And maybe you had that and you lost that. The Lord says, go back and pick that up again. Don't just lie around doing nothing, thinking, well, it's not going to really make any money for us. It's not going to elevate my career or anything like that. The Bible says, so what? Go home and do it with all your heart because you're not trying to live for them. You're trying to do for you and for the Lord Jesus. Greatness does not need to be measured by dollars or by likes and by clicks 
or by fame. It can be measured by the time you put into something and the effort you put into something and the skills that you gain by the approval of those you love. Isn't that enough for us? We don't need to sell a million copies. You know, I wrote a book. Oh, I'm going to sell a billion. Oh, I didn't. Now I'm a failure. How about, hey, I wrote this. Hey, friends and family, check it out. That's really great. It doesn't have to be something big and flashy and loud. We're living quietly, minding our own affairs and working with our own hands diligently for the Lord. I love these three things. To live your own life, to enjoy the fullness of that life, and to do everything in that life well. Isn't that a better way to live? I mean, come on. Does that surprise you that that's what God has led you to do and promised you? Go out and enjoy yourself. Do it holy and do it righteous. And we're assuming that you've got Christian morality and you've got the word and you've got doctrine and all that. But you've got that foundation. Now go live it out. Abundant life. Being a Christian is more than just praying and studying and coming to church. All of life is God's. All of life is the Lord's. It's important that we don't make too fine a distinction between the spiritual and the secular. It all ought to bleed in that the Lord's presence touches everything in your life. He desires us to make the most out of what we have and to love the people around us well. Why? Look at verse 12. Walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Walk properly. That could be walk worthy or walk becomingly. Not dependent on anyone but Christ. What is he saying? That when you live this kind of life that I just described, it's an attraction to the world. You know, people love to talk about the attractional model of, of church, of ministry, that we want to attract people to the gospel. God's got his own model of attracting people to the gospel. And it's called people living out the gospel that touches more than just what they do on Sunday morning. Well, I've got some new habits. I've got some new things. And, you know, I, I believe certain things are right and wrong. It's so much more than that, isn't it? 1 Peter 2, 15 and 17 says, This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People think Christians just get together and hate people all day long. That's ignorance. That's foolish. So by doing good, you put that to silence. Live as people who are free. Are you doing that? Do you live like a free person, or have you just like, feel like you've traded one set of bonds for another set of bonds? And all your fun and all your enjoyment are the things that you do secretly because you're afraid God's going to find out. That's not what Jesus planned for you. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants of God. This is called adorning the gospel. That we present the gospel and that never changes, but it's decorated, it's adorned, it's made attractive by the life you live. Rather than trying to use slick talk to get people into the kingdom, they see the way you're living and they say, I want a piece of that. They sit up and they take notice and they say, what is it? And you say, well, I love Jesus Christ and this is the kind of life he's given me to live. Just think about it. If you were living this way, if you had no concern more than was warranted for the great upheavals in life, and you're not focused on celebrity culture, and you're not focused on the political back and forth, and you're, you're not so concerned with all the, the drama in your neighborhood, you're, just, you're living quietly for yourself, focused on your own life. And if you were enjoying every piece of that life, you were taking special care to enjoy every day. And then you had things that you worked at and made yourself skilled at and worked heartily for the Lord with your own two hands. Who doesn't want that life? Everybody else is obsessed with what's going on thousands of miles away and what their neighbors are doing. Everybody else is 
not enjoying their life because they feel like they've got to race and hustle to catch up with the stuff that they're obsessed with. And they do things either not at all or lazily and mediocre. And they go home and they consume things that other people have done well. The Lord gives us the exact opposite of that. So when you think of living an abundant life, don't feel guilty about it. You're saving souls. You are adorning the gospel for Jesus Christ. If you can't do this for yourself, do it for the lost. You were saved from hell, but what were you saved for? You were saved for this, for an abundant life in Christ Jesus. Why is it so hard for us to believe that God wants us to have a good life? Ignore the charlatans. Ignore the people that have all kinds of schemes to get your money. Like th That will sap your joy if you focus on that too much. You were introduced to an abundant life that you have permission to pursue every day. That should cause you to leap out of bed every morning. This is another day where I'm living my life full of joy and I'm going to keep working hard at all the things that I love. Why are Christians always so miserable? It's like we, we, we're so focused on the vanity, vanity, all is vanity part of Ecclesiastes. We never move on to the therefore enjoy every inch of life. Well, there's just so much sin and there's so much tragedy in the world. Do you have so little faith that you cannot enjoy life in the middle of tragedy? Jesus could. Jesus had a rough life and Jesus lived in a rough time. All the things that you're terrified are going to happen if the political balance tips one way or another, that had already happened in Jesus' day. He was living under that. He had nothing. He had no one. And yet, he was having more fun than all the Pharisees were, who had everything they could ever hope for. Are you too afraid to sin to enjoy your life? Let me ask that again. Are you too afraid to sin to enjoy your life? Jesus was not. Jesus didn't care if he got accused of sinning. He knew what he was doing. He said, you can accuse me all you want. I know what I'm doing, and I'm not in sin, and I don't really care to impress you very much. Paul said the same thing. It's a very small thing for me to be judged by you. Don't you love that? If Paul had a Twitter account, that'd be like in his profile. It's a very small thing for me to be judged by you. I don't even judge myself, he said. David enjoyed life and was not afraid that he might sin. He probably could have been a little more careful. <laughs> but, but, but for all of that mess that David got into, he comes to the end of his life and God said, that was my favorite guy. Do it like him. And we're like, well, I'm much more holy than David was. It's like, yeah, but you've learned all the negative things, but you haven't learned any of the positive things. You've learned all of the don'ts, but you haven't learned any of the do's. David knew all of the do's and most of the don'ts. And even when he messed up, he got right back up and kept going, and he didn't let it keep him down the rest of his life. Your great commission is not just to spread salvation, but to spread this kind of life. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teach them to live the way I lived. Not to spread worry about all the terrible things happening in life. You know what? It's really funny. We think that we're so religious when we worry about all the terrible things going on. Everyone does that. That is not a unique, special, spiritual Christian thing. The Christian's job is to leave that behind because we give it over in prayer to the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31 through 34, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He says, The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek the Lord and he will add to you the purpose of obedience. The purpose of doctrine is to give you the keys to the fullness of life that God has created. The Lord says, I want you to have a full life. That's why I told you to save sex for marriage. Because if you don't, you're going to not be able to live life to the fullest. That's why I told you to be obedient. That's why I told you to control your temper. Because if you have an out-of-control temper, you can't live the abundant life. Doesn't that put a whole new spin on the, on the instruction that God gave us? That's not just because he hates us, but it's because he loves us. That's pretty exciting, I think. I exhort you as your pastor to go home and do a few things. Go home and renounce obsessing over a life that is not yours. What do you have to do to do that? Do you need to cancel some subscriptions and delete a few apps maybe? Do you need to tell some people, yeah, we can't hang anymore? Accept the quiet one that you've been given. Number two, take full delight in every pleasure that life has. We're entering the Thanksgiving and Christmas season. And I adjure you as your pastor to have a very, very Merry Christmas. Don't feel bad about enjoying life. Why do we do that to ourselves? Number three, find something that lights you up and do it to the best of your ability. And I mean really get into it and encourage each other to do that. I'm so sick of watching TV all day and checking Facebook and it's so stupid and it doesn't amount to anything. Well, find something you can put those hands that God gave you to and you're not going to want any of that stuff anymore. Like, Why would I go look at what somebody else is doing? I've got my own thing that God gave me to do right here. And for the rest of us, I hope we've been taught by God enough to love each other and help each other along this way. Even the reluctant among us to ask each other these kinds of questions and to help each other. God has promised you an abundant life. Will it be painless? No. Will it be lavish? Probably not. But in Christ Jesus, we know that it will be good. So go after it in good conscience. For as Solomon said, the Lord has already approved you.